You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about social skills. Joining me is Emily DePaul. Emily is a clinical research coordinator working with Dr. Joanne Wood on the PriCare Project, which focuses on positive parenting. She received a BS in biology from Villanova University, an MPH from Drexel University, and most recently an MA in counseling psychology from Arcadia University. Emily's interests lie in pediatric behavioral work, and in addition to PriCare, she also does group therapy for children on the autism spectrum. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great. Well, let's start talking about social skills. So when I think about kids with delays in social skills, I think about autism spectrum disorder, which I mentioned you do group therapy for. But what other diagnoses should we consider when we're seeing delays or deficits in social skills? This is something that is probably overlooked in our field. So I'm very glad you're asking about it. Like you mentioned, social skills deficits are most commonly associated with autism, but ADHD can actually have some social skills deficits associated with it as well. So for example, some children with ADHD have difficulty doing things like taking turns, listening, picking up on social cues, and they may also have difficulty with reciprocal conversation and with focus. And difficulties in those areas, regardless of diagnosis, make it harder for kids to develop and maintain friendships, especially as they get older and the expectations in friendships are higher. And another diagnosis where we might see an impact on social skills is anxiety. And sometimes anxiety can cause delays in social skills because children struggling with anxiety may want to be in control in order to keep their anxiety at bay. And this isn't always possible in social situations, which can lead to avoidance. And also for kiddos with social anxiety, their peers may need less time to acclimate to a new situation, whereas kids with anxiety may be left out because they struggle to acclimate at the same rate. And so children struggling with anxiety are many times afraid of making mistakes or saying the wrong things, which can also hinder their ability to engage with their peers. And then finally, I would say that any type of processing delay can potentially cause some social skills delays because for children that need time to process a question or need more time to learn the rules of a game, it might be difficult to engage appropriately with peers and therefore may impact their ability to be successful socially. And I imagine that teasing out these different diagnoses is tricky, but also really important in addressing their social skills challenges. Absolutely. Sometimes it helps to know the reason behind the behavior because it affects the tools that we use to help children work through the situations they're struggling with. Why a child might be avoiding a certain situation like engaging at recess may be important. Is it because they're having difficulty with understanding the rules of the games? Is it because they're anxious about approaching other children? Is it because they're overstimulated? And mostly, I would say that social skills that are developed in social skills therapy can work on improving overall social functioning, but I often fine-tune based on what is behind the deficit. 
And when we talk about social skills, we're collectively talking about skills like active listening, collaborating, empathy, and respecting boundaries, among other things. And there's a certain range of proficiency in these skills. Some people are better at them than others. But are these skills that can be taught or are they innate? That's actually one of the first questions that caregivers usually ask. And the majority of what I do for children with ASD is teach these skills. And I do think that the level that they are able to retain and implement them at the time depends on the child's developmental level and experience that they have had, and also on their desire to make friends and engage with others. Friendship is hard for neurotypical children, and it is harder for children who struggle with inflexibility, needing to follow rules, talking about a non-preferred topic, or have those unmet sensory needs. And for me, I have the same expectations of the kids that I work with who all have ASD as I would of their peers without ASD, but the way that they get there is different. And so we implement interventions We support them through conversations, we practice personal space, and we make it fun. So the kids can enjoy learning social skills and therefore associate social settings with fun and fulfillment. And often I highlight the similarities children have with their peers in the group and how that connection leads to friendship, because that is something that they may not see on their own. They may only see that their peer is too loud or isn't following the rules, which can be irritating. And I will say I am always just so in awe of how hard these kids work to be successful. I often tell families that my job is to help kids find the value in friendship and in social interactions. And it is certainly not always easy for them. But when a child is able to say that they have their first friend, the time and the effort is well worth it. And as a clinician, it is just very rewarding to be part of that process. So rewarding. And what important work. Friendship is obviously such an important part of so many people's lives. So can you just help me conceptualize what social skills training looks like? Great question. In my opinion, group-based social skills training gives you the most bang for your buck in terms of teaching the skill, modeling the skill, and then practicing the skill. And another benefit of group is that different children catch on to different skills more quickly and can model for the other children. So that peer-to-peer interaction and modeling is an added bonus. I have a group of five to seven-year-olds right now for social skills training. We meet twice a week for three-hour sessions, and our ratio is one staff member for every three children. So the environment is very supportive. And right now I'm speaking to my program, but there are other similar programs out there in other geographic areas that may follow similar structures. In our program, we do activities together, such as a group check-in where we can practice skills like active listening and asking on-topic follow-up questions. And the children don't necessarily know that I am targeting social skills or any social skill in particular because they're engaged in a fun activity. And then also a lot of the kids I work with have difficulty with managing social skills in an unstructured environment like recess. So while I keep the overall group routine the same most days, so they do feel safe, we do unstructured activities like Legos or Play-Doh, some gross motor activities where they have to work together or ask for what they need. And that way I can provide them with support to help them be successful in the activity And then after some practice, the goal is for the children to become successful on their own or with minimal support in the community. 
And then in terms of curriculum, I assess the kids using a biopsychosocial assessment and then create a treatment plan. And there are individual treatment plans based on the social skills that each individual needs to strengthen. But overall, we tend to work on four major social skills goals where we find the most deficits across our population. And those skills are increasing conversation skills, increasing social awareness, increasing peer interactions, and increasing self-regulation. And our program also uses the Social Thinking Curriculum by Michelle Garcia Winners as our guide. So our program is evidence-based, and the Social Thinking Curriculum is a framework of vocabulary, tools, and strategies for individuals ages preschool through adults. So they are, it really spans a great variety of ages. Well, this curriculum sounds amazing, and I would love so many of my patients and kids I know to be in your group. But how long does this treatment program usually last for kids who need social skills training? Is this a quick fix, or is this something that they're in over the course of their life? So most kids are with us for about two years. And by the end of that period, we find that they have either improved to the point where they can then participate in community activities with minimal support or they've reached a point where they need another service or different supports. For example, some children have mastered all the skills in our therapeutic environment, but they may continue to need assistance with managing frustration at school. So then we may refer them to individual behavioral support services that can work with them in the school environment. That's great. And I imagine it also varies a little bit based on the underlying diagnosis that we talked about at the beginning, as some things like anxiety can be treated and symptoms might be improving because of that and then are just augmented by the social skills training. So do you see that kind of variability based on the diagnosis that the child has? Absolutely. And we always say to caregivers as they begin our program that two years is the average. So children can be finished with our program more quickly, or they can stay longer depending on their individual needs. Now, thinking about the lifespan, developmentally, preschool is a key time for social skills learning. But are there skills that we continue to learn and build throughout our lifetime? And are there key developmental stages where social skills training might work best? So you're really speaking to my personal passion for preschool social skills here. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Preschool, I think, is a key time for gaining social skills. My personal philosophy is the earlier, the better. The earlier that we can teach social skills, the more time children have to integrate those appropriate social skills into their social interactions. Across the board, I will say there is a lack of preschool social skills programs. So I am actually funded to start a program at the Indian Creek Foundation where I work called First Friends, which will be a group social skills program for toddlers and preschoolers. And then it will also have an accompanying parent program for caregivers to access that peer support, which is much needed and learn some strategies to support their children because As we know, caregivers are the most important teachers, especially at this critical developmental stage. And so First Friends is at the pilot stage right now, but I am so excited and I think it will be a great support to preschool-aged children and their families. And then if we can get some of the skills in place before the children are school-aged, we may actually be able to mitigate some of the deficits that we are seeing in our young school-aged children. And then to answer your question about is there a a perfect time or is there a good time for social skills to be implemented, I have seen 
kids benefit from social skills at any stage in their lives. So there is never a too late or a bad time and continued practice always helps. But I do think it is optimal to get that training started early. And it is a goal of mine for families to have access to that support during that preschool stage. That's great to know. And I love that you're including parents in this early journey and thinking about how to support them in supporting their children. I know when a child has delays in their social skills, it puts social pressure on the parent too. And sometimes that can make them react in a way that's counterproductive. And so giving the parents some education about how to support their child is such an important piece of this picture. I agree. And that's actually something that caregivers have asked for in the past. And so it is definitely something that I wanted to incorporate into a new program now that we know that caregivers are looking for that support. So let's talk about a few particular skills and have you give us some ideas about how we can guide parents when we're talking to them in clinic. So first is flexibility. Flexibility is something that can be really hard for some kids. Variation in routines or inconsistency of rules can cause a lot of distress. So how can we teach flexibility? Flexibility is one of the most challenging things we work on in group. It is very hard for kids. And like I mentioned earlier, I do try and keep certain things the same each session so that children can practice flexibility in a safe environment. The first thing that the children do when they come in is look at the visual schedule. And most, if not all, will comment immediately if there is a change. So we really do work on that flexibility piece in a safe environment. We can teach flexibility, though, by empowering kids to learn that they can handle situations and give them a toolbox of ways to be flexible. For example, we teach coping skills like deep breathing. And for younger kids, I always say, smell the flower, blow out the candle. And we support the kids through using these coping skills when they're feeling overwhelmed and having difficulty being flexible. And the goal is for kids to learn that they can handle different situations or they can cope when things feel out of control. Another technique that we use to teach flexibility is that we do a lot of role plays and acting out different situations to rehearse the expected and the unexpected ways to react in situations that demand flexibility. So we rehearse everything from fire drills to recess games to playdates to conversations around non-preferred topics to deciding what video game to play with a peer, and my personal favorite, role-playing, getting a gift that you don't like. So this is one of the most fun and engaging ways for kids to learn, and everyone wants a turn to act out the unexpected behavior, (laughs) but it is a hands-on way for children to practice how it feels to be flexible, and that makes flexibility a little more attainable. And that way, when a real situation arises, I remind the kids that they have already practiced and they have the tools they need to get through it. And of course, additional supports may be needed, but the foundation is there. And then you're not trying to teach a skill in an already emotionally charged situation. And role plays are a tool that can be used at home, at school. And whenever a new situation comes up, acting out behaviors can be more effective than just talking about the desired behaviors. I think I might need to role play getting a gift that I don't like. That's a great (laughs) idea. I love that you're talking about rehearsing in advance. These are great strategies for parents that we can easily talk about in clinic with them. Now, conversational skills are important throughout life, but some kids have trouble with the back and forth. So what are some strategies to help build this skill? 
Great question. So often we watch videos of what expected and unexpected conversation looks like. And there are many readily available therapeutic videos on YouTube, but I also use a lot of children's movies to pick out appropriate and inappropriate conversation skills. And when you watch a movie with that lens, you'll be surprised at what you find to show what an appropriate and inappropriate conversation looks like. So in group, we might watch a brief portion of the movie and then discuss it. And when you use characters the kids are familiar with, it already makes the lesson a little more fun and they're more engaged. So we also play games where two kids might have a topic and the rest of us watch the conversation and we'll give a thumbs up when we see and hear a follow-up question or an on-topic comment, or we'll pause the conversation and offer support and help when there's an off-topic comment made or that conversation stalls. And I find that doing practice through games really helps the kids internalize and learn the skill. And they are more likely to use the skill if they've received a lot of praise around it and support around learning it and then also had fun during practice. And so I often encourage caregivers to use these role plays or these games at home just to kind of work on that transfer of skill and give the child increased practice. That's great. Practice being another theme here. So another thing, though, that we see in clinic that sometimes can be challenging is kids who have difficulty with personal space or volume control. So what are some ways that we as providers can address this and help families reinforce it at home? That's a great question. Personal space and volume control are two big ticket social skills that we work hard on for many sessions. One thing that I often suggest to caregivers is visual aids. And visual aids can really help, especially with learning personal space and volume control. We also read a lot of the Julia Cook books in group like Personal Space Camp. And then we practice personal space using hula hoops, putting our arms out to give kids a tangible way to measure personal space in the moment. And then we do lots and lots of practice with prompts to learn the skill. And just to note that Julia cookbooks can often be found in the library and they're on Amazon, so easily accessible. And then in terms of volume control, volume charts are great. I use a volume chart with the numbers one through five on it, where one is a whisper voice and five is an outside voice. And the chart also has pictures on it to help children visualize the volume they should have in a certain situation. So those can be helpful in clinic or at home. And often in my group, I'll point to the chart and the picture and give the kids a number of where their volume should be before we start an activity to preview the expectation. And again, volume charts can be used by anyone in any setting. I often encourage caregivers to even have one at home and take a picture of themselves and their children acting out each vocal level to put on the chart, which can then turn even the creation of the chart into a fun activity. And then going back to role play, role playing can be effective in teaching volume and personal space. And again, role plays can be done at home. And and I always recommend making it fun by, you know, maybe using the outside voice and asking children how they feel when someone uses the outside voice while the child pretends to try and watch TV. And the more that children, especially children with autism, can practice perspective taking the better chance they have of really internalizing that skill and the better they become at the skill and also at perspective taking, which is very important as well. Great. So many good tips that we can use in our clinical practice. 
Now, as we said at the beginning, impairment in social functioning is a key component of autism spectrum disorder. I can imagine that when I'm talking to parents about getting social skills training for their child with autism spectrum disorder, they may say something like, well, this is just who they are. This is part of their diagnosis. So can you help explain what impact social skills training has on children with autism spectrum disorder that sort of would help highlight for families why this is such a worthwhile investment? Absolutely. Katie, and I think you really make a good point that it truly is an investment. It's an investment on the part of the child and the family. And a lot of times what I tell caregivers is that social skills training can have a large impact on quality of life and the ability to function in the community. Two things that caregivers are often very concerned about when they have a child with autism. And I often also mention to caregivers that multiple studies have shown that social skills training in children with autism can do several things. It can increase appropriate peer interactions, which can help with friendships. It can reduce problem behavior, and it can increase academic performance. And so being able to interact appropriately with others is key to things like having friends and maintaining self-esteem, which can lead to participating in community activities successfully. It can lead to learning new skills and even successfully maintaining a job later on in their teen years or adult years. And then in addition, there's that reduction of problem behaviors, which can lead to optimal learning in the school environment, which is obviously beneficial for so many reasons. And anecdotally, which I often will also share with caregivers, the children that I see for social skills training, they want to be included in things like birthday parties, trips to bounce houses. They want to play on soccer teams, and they would like to do so with minimal support. And so that's where social skills training really comes into play because it can optimize their chances of being able to integrate into the community successfully and, more importantly, enjoy doing it. And I really think it's best to take the child's lead and treat from a strengths-based perspective. We are all motivated by our interests and talents, so we can really capitalize on the strengths that children have and help them develop the social skills to support their own strengths and their own goals, which can be helpful. That's great. Thank you so much for explaining that and all of the benefits that this skills training has. Now, many have wondered what the impact of the pandemic will be on children's social skills. With social distancing, fewer social gatherings and activities, and mask wearing, has there been any impact on social skills? That's such an important question. And I think that is something on all of our minds as we are where we are. But I can speak from my own clinical experience from before and then during the pandemic. So my group of five to six-year-olds was virtual during the 2020-2021 school year. And doing social skills group on Zoom was quite the unique adventure. I saw (laughs) a lot of ceilings and met a lot of pets. So we had some (laughs) adventures on Zoom. But we have been back in person since the summer of 2021 with masks. And while sometimes I think social distancing and the masks make it hard to practice conversations because the kids can't see each other's facial expressions and we can't always play games in the proximity we did pre-pandemic, but I would say we have transitioned to both teaching pandemic-appropriate skills and also revamping the way that we teach traditional social skills. The children overall have been incredibly resilient. I really thought it would be much more difficult than it has been for them to maintain the expected mask wearing 
and transition to new seating and new roles in our therapy room. But they really have been great with all the changes in that regard and have done very well. It's been hard even for adults, so I can only imagine how hard it is for these children. But in some ways, I think the children have been doing a better job than many of the adults that I've seen. Absolutely. I would agree. I would definitely agree. And I do think even for adults, fewer social gatherings and activities impact our tolerance for things like, you know, being in a crowded room, waiting in line, lots of noise. And so I have seen that some children, especially children on the spectrum who may already struggle to remain regulated in these situations, have had an increase in intolerance for those types of things. But I do think as we firm up new routines that we can all get used to something, whatever that something may be. I always say that consistency is key in learning any new behavior. And I think that when children have consistency, they're able to thrive even in difficult situations like you mentioned. And one thing I also mention too when I'm speaking with caregivers and families is that the children I have seen be most successful in difficult times are children who have caregivers and teachers and therapists who take these changes in stride and empower the children regardless of diagnosis to do the same. And as we talked about, I also work in the Pricare Parenting Program for caregivers here at CHOP. And this is an issue we talk about a great deal in that group as well. The more that caregivers and important adults in a child's life can be models of calm and regulated behavior, the greater the chances their children will act the same way. So important, and that is a theme that comes up on this podcast all the time in all areas, is how important it is for adults in children's lives to model healthy behaviors, whether we're talking about nutrition or sleep or anything, now also social skills. So if we have concerns about a child's social skills, where can we refer? Sure. So obviously geography comes into play when making referrals. And I would say as pediatricians, I would recommend maybe looking for community agencies or clinics that have social skills training programs. Again, I think a group program is most beneficial, but really any social skills training can be helpful for families when they're looking for support. For suburban families, they can always call community agencies or outpatient clinics in their area to inquire about any available programs. As I mentioned, I work at the Indian Creek Foundation in Souderton, PA, and we have a pretty robust social skills training program for children with autism ages 5 through 18 and piloting a program for younger children. So when calling an agency, caregivers may want to specifically ask for a group social skills therapy program versus, you know, individual outpatient counseling if they are looking for group options. And then finally, just kind of doing a Google search or asking the social worker at the pediatrician's office for recommendations may be helpful for caregivers or for pediatricians who are looking for resources to pass on to caregivers. Thank you so much, Emily DePaul. This has been very helpful. You've given us a lot of tips that we can incorporate into clinic when we're talking to patients and their families, as well as some resources for us to use and refer to. So we really appreciate the support that you provide our CHOP families and for the teaching that you've given us today. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. And thank you for having me on here to share about such an important topic. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.